What's up, sports fans? It's time for Let Me Speak. I'm Joe Braverman, and on this show, we discuss the big news in the world of sports as heard from me, myself, and I. Here's what we'll be talking about this week. Are the Ravens now the best team in the AFC in this week's power rankings? Plus, a preview of the MLB offseason after the Rangers captured their first World Series. And, is the NBA All-Star Game about to become more competitive? You're listening to episode 93 of Let Me Speak. Let's get it started. Fire up the intro! Let me speak. What is going on, everybody? Coming at you on Tuesday, November 7th, 2023, number 93, the 93rd edition of Let Me Speak. Thank you again for tuning in wherever you are getting this podcast. As we mentioned at the top of the show, every single week we get closer and closer to number 100. It's right around the corner, probably in early 2024 is when we will hit that 100. We get a big celebration coming on, but uh, I hope everyone enjoyed their extra hour with daylight savings time. I know at least for me, it took a little bit of time to get used to the time change to see it be completely dark at almost 445 up here in uh, Massachusetts. But wherever you are, the sun is setting a little bit early, which means we are deep in the heart of fall now as we hit a new month. And as usual with fall, it's all about football, and we are just past the midway point. I mean, it's hard to say there's like a midway point uh, with uh, week 18, uh, with 17 games and an 18-week schedule. So um, in, in week eight, this is the uh, or uh, past week nine, I should say. So uh, we're a little bit past the halfway, obviously. Everyone doesn't have a midway mark, but as usual, when we talk about the NFL, we have to talk about our top 10 and our bottom 10. So it's the power rankings and the bottom rankings in the NFL. And as usual, we start off with number 10. And before we do that, I would, I'm going to start doing some honorable mentions out there uh, because there are some uh, comments that I've heard. Hey, how about this team? Hey, about that team. So I'll, I'll give like two honorable mentions for each of the top 10. So I think honorable mention number one, um, in no particular order, um, I'll probably give it to the Saints uh, just because they're leading their division right now at five and four. Yes, it's not a very good uh, division, but, you know, if you're winning it, you know, you must be doing something right. And, uh, you know, there's a reason they brought in Derek Carr was to hopefully make a little bit of a playoff run if they can win that division. So that's honorable mention. Number one, number two, uh, I got to shout out the Steelers, uh, just considering it feels like they should be a lot worse than what their record shows. But Kenny Pickett is shown to be a serviceable quarterback. He's got some great weapons. Obviously you have the DPOY, uh, TJ Watt, Helping you out on defense definitely uh, is, a, is a factor for that. So those are some teams that I could see breaking into the top 10 if they uh, keep things going. But for number 10, I am going to put the Bills on here at number 10 as they just continue to fall and fall and fall. And I put them at number 10, not outside of the top 10, just because they still have a lot of talent. I think they're 
still one of the more talented teams in football. But the issue uh, that especially you saw in Sunday Night Football against the Bengals uh, was mistakes. And it's Josh Allen's mistakes that just continue to bite him in the butt. Um, The only difference is uh, in his first couple of years of his career, he was doing that in playoff games and he was really uh, getting forced in that. Now it's about midway through the season. It's a little bit earlier than expected. So while Josh Allen is at the forefront of all the talent that Buffalo has, the mistakes are absolutely killing him. I mean, now he's got nine interceptions, which are tied for most in the league. Um, You want to know who the other three are? Jimmy Garoppolo who's only played six games and was just benched. Mac Jones, who has one of the worst offenses in football. And Sam Howell, who is a second-year guy uh, with no offensive line. So the fact that Josh Allen is in that category, that's really, really concerning. And now he's sort of getting in that category of Kirk Cousins where he can he's not really making the big plays when they count. Yes, he can make some really good throws. He had uh, some great throws, some great scrambles. Uh, on Sunday night, but when it comes to when you need the most, Allen hasn't been able to do that. You know, he's been able to put up yards. The whole the whole Buffalo offense has put up yards, but they're very inefficient uh, when it comes to the red zone and scoring. So the fact that they're at five and four, um, as I I think I said last week, you can sort of take them out of sort of the Super Bowl conversation. I think this week just put a stamp to it. Because ultimately, you know, there were some people, um, you know, I think I had talked with uh, Nick Fitzy Stevens from EEI. I've talked to a couple of people who said Buffalo could take a step back. Now, he was saying, you know, maybe like a 7-10 and 10 team. I don't see that. I still see them getting into the playoffs. But I don't think you can give them strong consideration for a Super Bowl. Because Josh Allen keeps making mistakes and the defense is still getting beat up. Even though they traded with Green Bay and got Russell Douglas, I don't see that defense uh, getting any better so the bills are on the fringe of the top 10 and i gotta say if they lose to the broncos uh next week for week 10 on monday night football then there's a big issue there in buffalo and there might need to be a couple of pieces that need to get moved on maybe in the rebuild category i don't know that's kind of a wait and see and hopefully for bills mafia they don't have to go down that road not at all uh, moving on, though, to number nine, I'm going to put the Cowboys here. Uh, they lost to the Eagles. This was a really anticipating matchup. Obviously, when Philly and Dallas get together for a divisional matchup, they dropped the game 28 to 23. Now, I am a little bit impressed uh, that they didn't let Philly run away with things. I mean, we've seen pretty much at the start of the season that uh, when you give Dallas a competitive team similar to the 49ers, I believe in week three, they get the doors blown off and they look absolutely lifeless. But for this Philly team, I mentioned Philly wasn't as dominant and the Cowboys were able to hold their own. I mean, you had Deron Bland and Stephon Gilmore uh, holding in check for the most part, AJ Brown, Devontae Smith. Yes, they, they let up a couple of touchdowns, but they were still competitive. And for me, what Dak Prescott showed, yes, he got... 29 of 44 for 374 yards. He had three touchdowns, but that two point conversion when he stepped out of bounds, those are just the little things that continue to nip at Dallas. It's it's just the little tiny things. That's what can't get them over the hump. It's either Dak Prescott making a mistake and running out of bounds or throwing a costly interception. You know, they have the, the capabilities to do it. You have a good offense 
Obviously, you have Micah Parsons leading the charge defensively. I still think the defense takes a step back, obviously, with losing Trevion Diggs, and they have. Um, so I, I still can't take them seriously, but this is just what it's going to be all year. One week, they're going to show you, you know, that they can be a Super Bowl team. Another week, they'll show you, oh, they're just going to choke it away like they normally do. So I'm not going to buy into the Cowboys, but I am impressed uh, that they were putting up a fight, at least against a competitive team. Number eight, I'm fully back on the train of the Cincinnati Bengals. They are fully back. Um, Just like we've heard Pat McAfee, Dan Orlovsky, everyone has said it. What they did Sunday night against Buffalo showed to me that they are back. These four consecutive wins that they've had opponents like the bills like the Niners they are getting closer and closer to the top of the conference and ultimately I will see them cracking the top five power rankings if they keep going the way they are and really the only thing that's in their way right now is their one and three start and the division that they're facing every team is two games over 500 you got to keep in mind the Bengals are still in last place at five and three but in terms of a couple of the of all those teams in the divisions between Baltimore, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Cincinnati, I am a firm believer in Cincinnati right now because they will turn the tide and they're ultimately going to get better. Joe Burrow just continues to show how crucial he is. The fact that he went 31 of 44 for 348 yards and threw two touchdowns. You got to keep in mind on this four-game winning streak, he now has 10 touchdowns to two picks. Uh, Those previous four games, it was two touchdowns to two picks. So all you got to do is keep the defense serviceable, and they'll be able to force the turnovers and help Burrow out. I mean, this defense has the best turnover differential at plus nine. So the fact is, when Joe Burrow is 100% and fully healthy, this is a top-two team in the AFC. And the only thing that's gotten in their way has been their slow start. So I ultimately see a big jump on the way for Cincinnati. Um, I do have to keep them, though, at number eight just because of that start. But like I said, if they keep this train rolling, they'll get higher and higher in these rankings before you know it. Uh, Number seven, I'm giving it to the Jaguars, who were idle this week on a bye um, just because they've got the better record at six and two. I still like how that team is constructed. I will be curious, though, how they stack up against the 49ers at home, because if they can hang with the Niners, I know San Fran has struggled. But if Jacksonville can come up with a victory, they're kind of similar in uh, Detroit where you can actually start to take them seriously. And this isn't this isn't your, your mama's uh, Jacksonville team. They're not going to uh, be this sub-500 crappy team that we've seen for multiple and multiple years. You can take Trevor Lawrence, Doug Peterson, and that whole Jaguars team seriously. So this week will be very, very crucial. That's why I have them sitting idle at number seven. And just uh, speaking of Detroit, who I had mentioned earlier, they were also idle. I'm still going to leave them at number six because I still think they're a good team, but it's just getting those big... They're basically in the same boat as Jacksonville, is when they get a big win over a really good team, then you can start to take them seriously. This is, this ain't your mama's Detroit Lions. Uh, I, I'm not going to say they're going to prove anything uh, if they go to L.A. and beat the Chargers next week. Because I still I think Detroit has a better roster than LA. But if LA does beat them, if the Lions do get beat by the Chargers, 
then you might have to raise an eyebrow a little bit and say, okay, maybe they're not one of those top teams in the NFC that we expected. Because right now, it's basically Eagles and everyone else. So it's wide open. It's open for the Lions, for the Niners, uh, for uh, the Seahawks, just just to name a few teams. It's open for everybody. So the Lions have got to be able to capitalize on that and get some big wins under their belt. The Chargers will be a good one, but I still think they need some tougher opponents. Uh, number five, I pre-mentioned it, the 49ers. Again, they're idle on their bye week. I didn't drop them back just because of two things. One, yes, they were on a three-game winning streak, but um, it was good to have a little bit of a reset for Brock Purdy to get healthy, for Debo Samuel to get healthy, and the whole Niners team to get a reset, especially when they uh, just added Chase Young to that defensive line. You got the two Ohio State guys and Bosa and Young on each side. If they can find their groove early on, then they'll be right back in the picture of, oh, this is the team we expected and predicted to go to the Super Bowl. At least I did a couple of weeks ago. But like I said with Jacksonville, if they drop their fourth straight when they play in Jacksonville and play the Jaguars, then it's going to be harder and harder to believe them. But if they win, you can say, okay, they're at least on the right track. They'll be on the right track of getting back to the top of the NFC. So it's kind of a wait and see for uh, five, six, and seven right now because they were all on bye weeks this past week. Um, This next team at number four did not have a bye week. They played uh, internationally, and they had a loss. That would be the Miami Dolphins now at six and three. It's just what I talked about a couple weeks ago is that the facts and the statistics show that when when the Dolphins play, a winning team, they struggle because they're now 0-3. They got blown out by the Bills. Yes, they're a little bit worse than we thought, but it's still a plus 500 team. They lost to the Eagles, looked a little bit outmatched, and now they look unmatched to the presumptuous AFC favorites in Kansas City. Yes, it was Germany, but let's take that out of the point because if they keep getting outmatched, you find it harder and harder to believe in them. Yes, they're leading the AFC, but only because their schedule has been incredibly soft. Look at what they've done against the winning teams and against the really bad teams. They're I mentioned 0-3 against those three, but they've been outscored 105-55 in, in those games. Keep that in mind. And the teams that they've beaten that for their six wins, their total combined record is 11-38. and 38. Um, they've, they've got six wins over five teams because they beat the Patriots twice. Um the offense just cannot use their speed against these good teams because all the teams that they've played have had really good defenses. Uh, the Bills at the time had a good D. The Eagles have a good D. The Chiefs have a good D. Um, so Tua, they weren't able to use their speed. And it starts with Tua. He only went 21-34 for 193 yards. He did throw a touchdown in there. But I, I have an issue with how the offense stacks up against really good teams. Can Mike McDaniel formulate a game plan and get these guys thinking that when it comes to these high profile teams, they need to start winning some games. They really do. Because as of right now, I can't even put them in the top four of the AFC right now because of the schedule that they have. And ultimately just looking ahead, the only plus 500 teams that they have left to play are near the end of the year, the Cowboys, the Ravens and the Bills. So we're not going to get any more answers when they play the Raiders next week at home or when they travel to the Jets 
um, for a Black Friday matchup. They go to the Commanders, the Titans, the Jets again. So ultimately, we won't know until we hit the playoffs because their schedule is just that soft. But as they say, you know, you got to play the teams that are in front of you. Um, so I, I guess I have to put them at the top of the NFC if they just keep winning and they have one of the better records. But I can't tell you absolutely they're going to go far away because they could be a one-and-done team when it gets to the playoffs, that's that's ultimately what I could see happen. And one of the teams they could fall to is this number three team, and that would be the Baltimore Ravens because the Ravens, my goodness, are just on another level right now at seven and two, 37 to three. Not just that victory, but against who it was, against a playoff team in the Seattle Seahawks. I mean, they have just been on another level in their four straight wins. I mean, this past Sunday against Seattle, they had 515 yards of offense. And on the ground in the rushing game, only two yards short of 300 as a team. Okay? And I have said week after week after week about Baltimore that the key for them is Lamar Jackson's throwing. And sure enough, look what happened. 20 of 26 throwing. And yes, he had 10 carries. And, you know, you'll probably be saying, wait, Joe, you didn't want him to be running 10 times. No, I didn't want him to be the leading rusher. I didn't want him taking the bulk of the carries. So I'm okay with 10 as long as he's not the leading rusher. So the fact that he's doing that and he's able to be incorporating all of these weapons that he has. This, this is a very underrated uh, pass-catching uh, team in Baltimore. The fact that it's Mark Andrews at tight end, one of the best tight ends out there. Um, you have Zay Flowers, who's been an electric, electric rookie. Um, you tap you tap on a couple of other just serviceable guys, you know, guys who aren't going to be flashy, but can at least catch the ball and get you a couple yards. OBJ, Nelson Aguilar, yes, they're not great talents, but when you have a guy like Lamar Jackson, all you got to do is get open. And those guys know how to get open. I mean, in this four game winning streak, the offense of the Ravens is outscoring their opponents 130 to 49. You want to do the math? That's roughly 32 and a half points per game. Okay. And two of those wins, keep in mind, was a 38 to six win over Detroit, a playoff team, and a 37 to three win over Seattle, a playoff team. This is the fifth best offense statistically in the National Football League. And the defense is much better than I thought, considering how many injuries they had in the secondary. They just plug guys in. But ultimately, you look at the D-line, you look at the linebacker core, I said it's a really good defense. And right now, if you ask me, this is the second best team in the AFC right now. The second best team right now. I don't think that this offense can sustain this high level of offense. But considering now that you know, I thought at the beginning of the year, now that Lamar Jackson is fully dedicated to the Ravens and there's no contract dispute getting in the way, then this was going to be a good Baltimore team. I didn't expect them to go seven and two, but hey, here we are. Baltimore just keeps on moving up. Uh, number two, I am going to put the who I still believe are the AFC favorites, and that's the Chiefs. Obviously, winning in Germany over the Dolphins. We talked about that game on the Dolphins side. On the Chiefs side, Yes, they won, but 21 points after scoring nine last week does raise a little bit of an eyebrow. This offense has just, they haven't looked the same. They're not the normal Patrick Mahomes-style offense that we're used to seeing. I mean, last Sunday, 
They had 267 yards of offense. They were three of 10 on third down. And on the year, they're averaging 23 points per game. Now, you got to keep in mind that, yes, we're halfway through. And through all of Mahomes' time as the starter for Kansas City, they've had at least 28 per game, uh, going back to when he first became a starter in 2018. And Mahomes just didn't even look that good himself either. 20 of 30 for 185 yards. Yeah, he had two touchdowns, but no target had more than three receptions. So, I mean, there there is still con- some concern for, for two things, which I say week after week is – if you don't have a running game, then you're going to struggle, uh, at least on the on the Chiefs' side. Patrick Mahomes needs some help from his running backs. He also needs help from guys not named Travis Kelsey because all, when Travis Kelsey and Patrick Mahomes have that connection, they are maybe the most unstoppable duo in football, without a doubt. But where are the other guys? You know, there aren't any flashy names out there. You're not going to say, oh, when you need a catch, you're going to go to Marquez Valdez-Scantling. You're not going to go to Sky Moore or Rashi Rice, all these other guys. If you don't have Travis Kelsey, what is Mahomes then? Is he just another guy? No, he's still one of the best, but you at least got to help him out. So I think someone other than Travis Kelsey has to become a factor on offense. It can't just be a group of eh guys. You need to have someone who can step up and when they're double teaming Travis Kelsey on his routes, someone's got to get open and someone's got to be able to make a play. Mahomes needs that for sure. And then the defense, the way they were on Sunday, that's all they need. That's all they need uh, to be uh, a really good team. Because as I've, I've said for years now that Kansas city's defense is probably extremely overrated, but now that they have Chris Jones off of the holdout, um, they're now the second best team in terms of scoring defense wise at a little under 16 per game. And then even the creativity when you have Mike Edwards uh, scooping up the fumble, but then he pitches it to Brian cook and Brian cook just goes off for a touchdown. I mean, I'm not going to say that's the play that makes them an elite defense, but that was just some really good creativity right there. And that's what they need. They need a defense like that, that can hold teams like Miami in check to only 14 points. So kind of still a wait and see with Kansas City. They'll definitely make the playoffs. I even expect them to go to the AFC Championship. It's just a matter of how can they develop in this back half of the regular season. Um, They're not the number one team, though. I have to put number one to the Eagles because they defeated the Cowboys. They have the best record in football right now. And yes, these divisional matchups always seem to trip up Philly. And I've said for so long now that they're not as dominant as they were um, I, I just look at the record. I see eight and one. I see the best team in football and they are, you know, they have one of the most dynamic uh, offenses in football. Yes. They couldn't put away Dallas and CD lamb was only four yards short of putting away the victory. This is what Nick Sirianni has done with uh, Philly has put them, you know, normally you hear defenses being a bend don't break, but he's basically put the whole team on a bend don't break kind of situation because Jalen Hurts is able to move down the field. Uh, He's able to move the ball down the field. He's got great weapons um, and just some dynamic play calling, obviously, from Sirianni. Um, Obviously, using the tush push or the brotherly shove, however you want to call it. 
And then you have the defense allowing over 400 yards, but holding Dallas three of five in the red zone. Um, so I, I still think this is the best team in the NFC. They're not dominant like they normally are, but they're now head and shoulders above everyone else uh, in the NFC. So that's why I'm putting the Eagles at number one. And they might even stay there considering the bye week if they uh, stay idle. But this is a great time for them to be going on the bye week. Um, so there you are. Top 10. Uh, watch out for the Bengals. They're going to get up in there. They're going to, I think, climb higher and higher in those rankings. And then just keep an eye on those top teams like the Dolphins and the Chiefs if they continue to struggle uh, in their next opponents. Kansas City, for that, uh, they get their bye. You won't be able to see that. And then same thing with Miami. So just fast forward to week 11 to wait and see for that one. Uh, on to the bottom 10, though. Um I had to really think a, a lot about this one, uh, at least to start on number 10. Cause I mean, a couple of honorable mentions, I probably could have put uh, the Vikings, not the Vikings. I probably could have put the bucks in here because now they've lost four straight after starting three and one, I could have put the Rams in uh, at three and six, um, but they have, you know, their issues and even the jets too. They look like they're coming back down to earth, but my number 10 team is going to be the Atlanta Falcons. Uh, because they are sitting at four and five, number one, and just how how disappointing that kind of loss is. The fact that they lost to the Vikings, and the Vikings basically had a quarterback in Josh Dobbs that had to learn on the fly. Okay, keep that in mind. We had a, I think Jaron Hall is a fifth round rookie. He gets concussed. He's out of the game. Josh Dobbs come in. Not only was he one in seven as a starter in Arizona, but now we're hearing reports that he's literally Dobbs is literally coaching the offensive line and his center about the cadence, about getting assumed to that. And he's basically learning the playbook on the fly. So the fact that Atlanta lost there is embarrassing. That's embarrassing. Unless I'll just put it at it like this. They need a passing offense, okay? Whether it's Desmond Ritter or Taylor Heineke, yes, they're a top 12 uh, offense in yards uh, gained uh, overall, but scoring, they can't score the ball. When they get to the red zone, they absolutely stink. They're the eighth worst scoring offense in football. So you've got, you found a gem in Bijan Robinson. He's going to be the next great running back. But in terms of a pass catcher, you thought it was going to be Kyle Pitts. He's getting outshined by the other tight end you thought was just going to be a scrap heap pickup in Jonu Smith. Drake London doesn't put fear in the eyes of defenses. So you need a game changer. How good was Atlanta when they had guys like a Tony Gonzalez, like a Julio Jones, like these big-time game-changing receivers? They don't have that. So ultimately, Atlanta goes nowhere unless – they can learn to pass the ball much more effectively. That's why I put Atlanta at number 10, because honestly, I didn't expect them to be four and five at this point, but still, at least like if you're four and five, you got to have some sort of bright spot. It can't just be your running back right now. So that's where Atlanta is for me at number 10. At number nine, even though they won, I can't move them too much. I'm putting the commanders here just because, yes, you won but it was against the Patriots and the Patriots are one of the worst teams in football. And you already told your entire team and your entire fan base that we're starting over. If you traded away chase young and Montez sweat. Now I did see some good things uh, from Sam Howell. Cause I was able to watch the game entirely. I saw Howell 
um, for the first time for a full uh, 60 minutes. He looks good. He's got some talent with him. I mean, 29 of 45, 325 yards, a touchdown and a pick. You know, it's those decision, the decision making, obviously the uh, the interception at the end of the first half was really bad, but he's got some good arm strength. I think he probably needs another big weapon or two, probably someone other than uh, Brian Robinson and Antonio Gibson in the backfield. Maybe grab a third good wide receiver because I like Terry McLaurin and I like Jahan Dotson. Um, and def- defensively, we know that they're just going to be overhauling everything basically because they got, yeah, they, they basically got a softball of an offense, as I mentioned in the, uh, in the Pats and they got a gift of a game ending interception. The fact that Juju Smith Schuster had the ball go right through his hands. So I'm not fully buying in back on the commanders, but Hey, they got their third win of the season. Give them the, uh, the applaud for that. Number eight, I'm going to put the Titans here at three and five, losing to the Steelers on Thursday night football, 20 to 16. And I look at it more from a potential fan base because we just heard today from Mike Vrabel that Will Levis is going to be the starter going forward and Tannehill is going to be riding the bench. That's so shocking, said no one ever. (laughs) I ultimately expected this to happen. Tannehill's time was coming to an end. It came a little sooner than I thought, but you don't draft Will Levis with uh, that very early second round pick uh, to have him ride the bench for so long. Uh, a guy who was ultimately a first round QB, but Levis is flashing his potential. He went 22 of 39, 262 yards, but he had a pick and he was sacked four times. So he needs a little bit more development than that. And similar to Sam Howell, he needs more uh, targets than just De- uh, DeAndre Hawkins, who's in the back half of his career, and Derrick Henry, who looks like he's slowing down at least for a running back. Now, Henry is still serviceable. I mean, you don't get 17 rushes and 75 yards plus a touchdown for nothing. Um, but he is factoring a little bit more in the passing game than I initially thought. The fact that he got 27 yards on just three catches. Um, but we know that those two, Henry and Hopkins, are in the back half of uh, their career. So they need some much more young weapons out there. And who even knows if Mike Vrabel is even going to be the guy. But there's at least hope in Tennessee right now. There's hope with Will Levis. And now they have a winnable game uh, in Tampa. Now they're... There is a bright future, but at least for the 2023 season, I don't see them getting any better. <laughs> at least not for me. I mean, maybe they can get to like a, a seven and ten, something like that. But I'm not fully saying Tennessee is going to be a team that gets out of these rankings anytime soon. Uh, that's who I see at number eight. Number seven, because they were idle, I'm going to leave the Broncos right here because again, they had some good potential when they knocked off Kansas City. I do think the bye week was. A little bit, you know, worse timing because they had just come off a Kansas City win. Everyone's feeling good. You'd hope that Sean Payton and Denver would ride that into their next matchup. But now they've got, they've had ultimately two weeks to get ready for this Monday night matchup against Buffalo. And Buffalo is streaking now at this time. So if they can get another win, look out for Denver to just miss the playoffs. <laughs> uh, Sean Payton is just getting uh, his feet under him. With this Denver team, he knows that he just has to make Russell Wilson a game manager, and he's got to focus defensively. That's where Sean Payton has to put all his eggs in, because Wilson has been around long enough to, I guess, not know what he's doing, but he kind of should know his talent by now. So if he gets, you know, again, in his head, that's when Payton can step in. But right now, his main focus should be on improving defensively. 
Uh, number six, I'm going to go to the Packers on this one. They made a jump for me. Uh, they did win, but again, it was the Rams, similar to the Commanders who beat the Patriots. It was a Rams team who wasn't starting Matt Stafford, had Brett Ripien. So I don't think you can get too excited. I think what helped was Aaron Jones. Aaron Jones, uh, when he was healthy, he was a top 10 running back, and he's been hurt for a while now. Uh, I believe it was the hamstring or maybe the ankle, something like that. But he is the big key on that Green Bay offense. And when he's rushing 20 times uh, for 73 yards and a touchdown, doesn't look like a lot of yards, but he was still effective in the running game. That's big, especially for Jordan Love, because Love right now is being told um, he's not even being told anything. I mean, you got the... uh, some upper management people in Green Bay saying, oh, we're going to have to wait and see about Jordan Love being the future, uh, about picking up that option. I mean, 20 to 26, yeah, you're accurate, but you only got 226 yards out of it. So, I mean, Jordan Love, you can feel good about this win, but you can't say, oh, I just locked up my uh, starting job after that. You know, let's let's hold on on that. So, I mean, again, opponent is big, and I bet you when they play the Steelers this week, they'll sort of come back down to earth, and I expect a Steelers victory out of that one. Number five, I'm going to go to the Bears on this one because, again, Tyson Badgen is a D2 quarterback. You can clearly see why. The fact that he threw three picks, he lost a fumble, five turnovers in total for Chicago. I'll just put it at it like this. I don't care if it's Justin Fields or if they trade back for Mitch Trubisky, if they bring back Jay Cutler or even get Rex Grossman, for God's sake. Whoever is at quarterback, they got to get better at throwing the ball because they have a really good running game right now. The fact that even without Khalil Herbert, Deontay Foreman has been able to run really effectively. But what are you getting out of your quarterback? This is the ninth worst passing team in the league. And the fact that even when you add DJ Moore, you still can't do anything with that. You can't do anything. So I don't get it. I don't get it. And I, you know, it's not going to change with with uh, Montez Sweat. Again, this is a trade that I I just don't get. Do they really see him as part of the future? I would have waited to give him an extension. Um, you know, but hey, Chicago wants to lock him up. Uh similar, you know, it's kind of like a Khalil Mack situation. Why you're a really bad team trading for a guy with this kind of caliber and then extending him? I'm not sure. I guess you have to ask uh, Ryan Poles and uh Matt Eberflus and everyone in that uh Bears organization. So they might, they could pull off a win though if they uh, can knock off the Panthers on Thursday night football. So wait and see for that one. Uh, number four, we're going to the Patriots on this one. The fact that, similar to what the Falcons did, the fact that you lost to a team who gave up their two best defenders, um, it, it's kind of embarrassing and it just keeps getting worse. We'll talk more about the Pats' future during Let's Get Local, but losing to a team that deliberately is tanking is not good. You know, you had. Mac Jones's receivers dropping everything. Jalen Rager had a deep ball go right through his hands. Juju Smith-Schuster let the game literally slip through his fingers. I mean, the only bright outlook on offense right now is Demario Douglas, but he's more of a complimentary receiver, at least uh, maybe like a number two or a number three receiver. You know, Mac Jones clearly isn't going to be the guy, but at least give him some kind of hope. He had to throw 44 times. He completed 24 of them and only got 220 yards out of it. Like, for goodness sake, help the guy out. You know, maybe going to another country uh, and playing a team like Indianapolis and Germany will uh, help things out. You know, I don't expect it, but, you know, 
that's just where it is for New England, uh, a team that's won six Super Bowls, uh, the most in NFL. Number three, we're going to go to the Giants on this one. Again, just the offense just is (laughs) – this is the worst offense in football. I'll just say it like that. This is the worst offense in football. And that's saying a lot when you have a guy like Saquon Barkley on the team. But you lose to the Raiders 30-6. to Now Daniel Jones is out with a torn ACL. Tyrod Taylor – is still on injured reserve. So you're going to have to run with Tommy DeVito, for goodness sake. I mean, my goodness. I mean, if you thought 40-0 was bad to Dallas, just wait until next week when they go into Arlington to play the Cowboys with this kind of offense. I mean, Saquon Barkley might need to run 80 times for them to have any shot of it. But even then, it can't even help. I mean, I hope uh, for fantasy-wise that he does it. <laughs> but, I mean, the only other game-changer you have offensively for the Giants is Darren Waller. And plus, you have an offensive line that absolutely stinks. So I ultimately think the Giants are going to stay in this top three for the rest of the year. I don't expect them moving into a four or even a five. I think they're either going to be three, two, or one, just flip-flopping all season long with the road they're going on. Number two, rejoice if you are a fan of the Panthers because they are not in the number one spot for the first time in a very long time. Yes, they lost to the Colts 27-13, to but the team ahead of them, looked absolutely worse than that. So they get out of the cellar. Bryce Young, obviously you knew. This is what I'm going to say week after week. You know, this is, I will say for this week, the first time in his career, Bryce Young was the reason that they lost. Uh, He hasn't played great, but he hasn't been the sole reason for all of these Carolina defeats. I mean, the fact is this past Sunday, he had three interceptions, including two pick sixes to Kenny Moore for the Colts. Um, And he got sacked four times. So for the first time in his young career, he was the reason, at least in my eyes, that they lost to Indianapolis. So he's got to get better at that. You know, he's got somewhat of a softball game against the Bears. um, But this is what Carolina signed up for when they made uh, the trade with with Chicago and got that number one pick in Bryce Young. They expected these kind of uh, trials and tribulations. But as I said, they were not the worst team and looked uh, totally incompetent because that new number one team for the bottom 10 rankings is the Arizona Cardinals, who lost to the Browns. They didn't just lose. They got shut out. They got embarrassed 27 to nothing. I mean, what else are you supposed to expect with Clayton Toon at quarterback? The... (laughs) Clayton Toon. Who had even heard of Clayton Toon if you're not a fan of the Cardinals before uh, Sunday's game? I'll raise my hand. I did not know of him at all. And you saw why we didn't know about him. He got sacked seven times. He threw two picks. He only had 58 yards on the game. So that is why Arizona right now is saying, oh, Kyler Murray, no setbacks. He's definitely coming back. Don't you worry about that. I mean, you gave away Josh Dobbs and you thought you could tank with this guy Clayton Toon. I mean, Kyler Murray could make things look a tad better, but I ultimately think it's too little too late. I don't think outside of Murray, I mean, are we really expecting the same Kyler Murray after tearing an ACL in less than a year? Because I'm not. So Arizona, congratulations or not, I guess, because you are the new number one team in uh, this bottom 10 ranking. So that's where we're at in the NFL. We got our 10 best teams. We got our 10 worst teams as we hit the halfway point of the NFL season. But coming up next, we'll put a little bow on the MLB season and get our first little mini preview for how the offseason could look in Major League Baseball. 
So shifting gears, we're going to go into the baseball world. And before we get into the offseason and the moves that have been made so far, at least uh, from an executive side of things, I want to put a bow on at least the 2023 season and talk about the Rangers winning the World Series. And ultimately, I expected them to win. Uh, you know, I, I had said last week that before the series started between uh, Texas and Arizona, I thought Texas was the better team and they clearly were through those first five games, but I was not expecting Corey Seager to uh, play in a Mr. October kind of way as he did. I mean, he got the MVP, and I thought deservedly so, because even without Adolis Garcia, someone had to make some noise in the lineup, and sure enough, Seager was the guy. 286 average, three home runs, six RBIs in those five games. But as I mentioned, starting pitching was the key, and the fact that they were able to get some really good outings uh, from John Gray, uh, out of the bullpen, from Jordan Montgomery, and the guy who I ultimately think now is should be the number one option for any team if they need a win-or-go-home kind of game from a starter, and that's Nate Evaldi. You know, if you ask any team, uh, whoever it is, if they said you're in a win-or-go-home situation, who's the starting pitcher you want? I want Nate Evaldi, without a doubt. That would be the one for me. So he gets his second ring. You got guys like Robbie Grossman, Marcus Simeon, even Jacob DeGrom, who only made, I don't know, like two months worth of starts for Texas. He gets a ring. So I, I guess that solidifies a Hall of Fame career. I mean, I have no idea about that. <laughs> one of the funniest things is Will Smith, uh, the reliever, getting his third straight ring. He's on his third straight championship team. He was with Atlanta in 21, Houston last year, and Texas this year. That That's kind of funny to me, but Bruce Bochy now, at least for me, has just officially put his stamp on a Hall of Fame managerial career, getting his fourth championship. I already knew he was going in regardless. The fact that he won three in five years with uh, the Giants, but now that he goes to a new team, roughly, I forget when he retired from the Giants, but it's been years in between his last team and his new team. And in his very first year, boom, he gives Texas uh, a world championship. I ultimately, I think he's put himself top 10 managers of all time. And he's definitely going to the hall of fame. This just, as I said, put a stamp, put the seal on it and mail it into the ballot. He's going, he for sure is on his way to the hall of fame. And ultimately I, I wish I could pull up the clip when I uh, first came back and uh, restarted this podcast uh, saying that Texas to me was the World Series favorites or at least the AL favorites to go to the World Series. I don't know if I said that they would win the World Series because I think myself and then when I had Cooper Leonard from WEI on, uh, he had said the Braves, the Dodgers. So I, I didn't say that Texas was going to win the World Series at that time. I just said that they were the American League favorites. I mean, maybe maybe for next time I'll, I'll uh, pull that clip up, but... Uh, congrats to the Rangers for getting their first World Series in uh, franchise history. But now the eyes are set on next season because we've already seen a little bit of chaos, seeing so many managers come and go. I think nothing has been more chaotic in recent memory, at least from a managerial side of things, than to see the Cubs fire David Ross and then in the same day poach Craig Council from the Brewers and give him, make him the highest paid manager in league history to give him a five-year, $40 million contract. Now, I really had to wrap my head around it because I get that the Cubs collapsed. They had 
a playoff spot in the back, but then they just had a really bad September. And when you talk to Cubs fans, they weren't liking what uh, Ross was doing. Um, but this was a team on a rebuild. Okay. The rebuild was ahead of schedule. We thought that in 2024, this would be a team to make some noise, but they have a young core. They had brought on Cody Bellinger. Um, and I don't know if I could say, you know, I can't pinpoint a decision that David Ross did that was really, really bad. But I can't say the collapse was solely on a, a guy who is as likable as David Ross. I mean, how likable is David Ross everywhere he goes? I mean, he was a fan favorite when he won the World Series with the Red Sox. He was a fan favorite when he won the World Series with the Cubs. You know, he goes straight from being a player to a manager for Chicago. I I just don't understand why you would give up on a guy when you're basically one year away from polishing off the rebuild and getting back into the playoffs. I don't get it. And then for the guy you brought in, uh, in Craig Council, I mean, let's look at what he's done with Milwaukee in those nine seasons. He took Milwaukee to the playoffs five of the last six, six years, but you have to keep in mind, he was 707 and 625 for an overall record. And you got to keep in mind, this was maybe the worst division in baseball. I think, what did they win? Like 86 games or something like that. They, were, they weren't on any level. And no one was talking about them in the, in the uh, category of the Braves, the Dodgers, or any of the top teams in the National League. So I don't understand why they would want Craig Council. You know, I, I do get why um, they that Milwaukee, you know, declined his contract. But I don't get why you would give Council all this money. I, I, I don't understand. Did they want him that bad? I don't know. I don't know. I ultimately, this is kind of like a lateral move. You know, it's not like um, bringing on like a Hall of Famer or whatever, or a guy like past his prime. So I ultimately, it's a wait and see for Craig Council. It, it really is. But I mean, the <laughs> you have everyone in the Brewers, uh, at least on the roster, being like, yo, why did you do that to us? You know, just basically jump ship in the division. You know, I can't wait to see that first uh, Cubs and Brewers series. I think that'll be. Something, uh, a little juicy storyline there, at, at least for that one. But the uh, Brewers aren't the only team to have picked up a new manager. Steven Vogt, the former all-star catcher, is going to be the Guardians manager to succeed Terry Francona, who is retiring. Um, I don't know much about Steven Vogt, but I at least have heard and have read that during his time as bullpen coach with Cleveland, he was widely respected. So maybe this is who Cleveland wanted all, all along. So... I'm kind of, again, in a wait-and-see kind of thing with Steven Vogt. I think he's a good guy, um, you know, if he is widely respected. But it's just the roster that uh, the Guardians have that uh, is the issue for me. Um, and then the Mets also got a new manager. They, again, go a few towns over, go to the Yankees, get a Carlos Mendoza uh, to become their new manager. And ultimately, I expected New York to just have a full, big restart here because – they ultimately failed at trying to buy themselves a championship. They couldn't do it when they got Verlander and Scherzer in the same offseason. You know, you saw it at the deadline, getting rid of those two guys. Um, everyone's stepping down left and right. Buck Showalter not returning as manager. So New York is just going to have to do a full restart and maybe not try and throw so much money at these free agents. Maybe actually put together a good roster rather than just see the big names and throw money at them. Um, speaking of big names and throwing money at them, free agency. How's it going to play out? 
Um, I think ultimately we all agree that the first big domino is going to be Shohei Otani. He's going to be the guy that sets the market. But you've also got, uh, you know, some big, I think at least for Otani, all the big markets are going to be in play. Both New York teams, Boston, both LA teams, uh, all, all these teams. I mean, ultimately, I think every team should be in on him. Um, but ultimately, he's going to go somewhere who gives him the most amount of money for sure, even if he's not going to be pitching next year uh, while he recovers, if he's just going to be your DH. Uh, but, I mean, you do have some really interesting names out there for pitching. We've heard the Sox are interested in Jordan Montgomery, um, possibly a John Gray, uh, Aaron Nola from the Phillies. There are a lot of interesting names out there, but we're really not going to know anything about it until we really get to the winter meetings at the end of November and into December. Um and Shohei Otani is going to be that first domino to fall. So it's like once he goes, then the moves are going to start coming uh, fast and furious. So we'll wait and see with that one. Where does Otani go? Ultimately, I have no idea, but I know he's going to get paid a lot of money wherever it is he goes. Um, so that's that's how we're setting up the MLB offseason. We'll probably revisit that in the next couple of weeks, uh, considering if there are any moves that get made uh, and when we get into those winter meetings. But uh, coming up next we got a couple of other topics to hit on, mostly some co- NBA and some college football. Uh, where is this that state there with a season just starting and a season almost over? Find out right after this. part of the show where we just picked on a couple of topics uh, that we didn't get to in our first couple of segments and we're going to focus really on the NBA and college uh, some college football on this one we'll start in the NBA and the big uh, injury going out there I I guess you can't say injury but CJ McCollum has a collapsed lung and he's out yet again you know this this is a scary situation when you hear collapsed lung that's more than just like a sprained ankle or a sprained wrist anything like that this is this is serious, and um, you know I'm wishing nothing but the best for McCollum. This is a scary situation, and he has to go through it again. But when you're looking, at least basketball wise, New Orleans needs him right now, and they are they are uh, in the weeds right now with all their injuries. Now McCollum's out, Najee Marshall, Jose Alvarado, Trey Murphy—they're all hurt. Um, but McCollum's the biggest one of all. I mean, let, let's put it like this. You can't count on Zion Williamson for a full season. So if you don't have C.J. McCollum, you're in a lot of trouble. So you put those two together with Brandon Ingram, Herb Jones, Jonas Valanciunas, that starting five has potential, but they just don't have any depth behind them. So really the biggest issue for New Orleans is, uh, is injuries. And C.J. McCollum, I hope you do recover, and I hope we get to see you back on the court uh, sometime soon uh, for our Hope you get that full recovery out of there. But staying in the NBA, uh, we heard earlier in the week that Adam Silver uh, talked about uh, NBA All-Star Games because if you had missed it a couple of weeks ago, the NBA All-Star Game was getting rid of these uh, drafts and captains and are just going to go to a standard East versus West game. And he even took some responsibility for the games being lackluster because we'll put it like this. For maybe, I would say, eight years or so, the games have just been so lackluster there. It hasn't been competitive at all. It's been a lot of just waving defense rather than like some actual competitive games. There were a couple of them in between, uh, I think 2018 when they first did the draft, uh, that was pretty good. 
2020 when they did the tribute to Kobe. Um, I, I thought that one was pretty good, but all of them have just been like, you know, just guys running back and forth, getting dunks and then, you know, easy three pointers. And so Adam Silver talked about it. He took some responsibility and he said he talked with uh, Chris Paul about taking away, you know, normal routines, how the, the pageantry and the shows were were uh, taking away from routines. Let's just put it out like this. This is what I think is the problem with the NBA All-Star Game. Number one is you're overthinking so many of these formats. The fact that you're having like 40-minute performances pregame and then getting into introductions. I mean, let, let's put it out like this. Last year's All-Star Game in Utah. I mean, you have your standard introductions, which normally take, I don't know, 10 minutes or so when you're if you want to get all with the pageantry and all that kind of stuff. But the fact that they like did it schoolyard and they took, I don't know, 20 minutes to pick these teams and that all the players couldn't have like a traditional warm-up or whatever, that's when you're overthinking the format. So I sort I like going back to the basic of East versus West. Um, but I'm not gonna get too excited because it's good for Adam Silver to take the responsibility, but I don't think it all squares on him. This is on the players that uh that are really setting the standard because they should shoulder of it. They should shoulder it for their effort. I mean, if you're being told, un unless Adam Silver saying, Hey, don't worry about this game. You're going to make a lot of money. Just go out there and play basketball, which I ultimately don't think he's doing, but the players actually need to put some dedication into this. I mean, let's go back to all-star games of the past of Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant. Those guys, you know, they had their flashes of just, you know, going and making dunks or whatever, but at least they put some kind of effort instead of just standing around sort of playing loose defense and then letting guys just blow right past you. So I don't think it's on Adam Silver. This is on the players, and I fully expect that whoever gets selected to this year's All-Star game, they play Indiana, they actually put in some effort rather than just talk about it, okay? That, that's ultimately what I'm seeing is it's not on Adam Silver's fault. It's the players who actually need to put in the effort for goodness sake. Uh, that's why like either that or like put some stakes into it. You know, it, it was nice that when they started in 2020, started playing for like HBCU schools or stuff like that. You know, maybe you need to do what like the MLB did and put some stakes about like home court or whatever. Um, or tell them, hey, you're going to get a game check bonus if you win or something like that. I don't know. But just make something. The player, the players shoulder this responsibility because of their effort. You know, it's on the players for their effort, not on the commissioner for changing things around. That's ultimately what I see with that. Uh, moving on, though, to college football. Um, I haven't talked about uh, CFP in a while, but um, obviously the big story has been the sign stealing scandal the signal stealing scandal with Michigan and Connor Stallions uh, with Jim Harbaugh. I mean, I'll put it at it like this is for so long. It's been, it's, it's been a game of chess football, any sport in general has, has ultimately had a, a game of chess essentially for when you're talking about a coaching side of things, you know, I go back to the, uh, the Seattle uh, and new England super bowl, super bowl 49, where um, after the crazy catch, Seattle looked all over the place. Uh, you would have thought standard there was for Bill Belichick to call a timeout, but he saw that it was kind of chaos there, and so he just let it go. That's sort of the chess style of things. Um, if we're hearing more about like what's going on with stealing signals, and if like this just random Michigan staffer 
was going to other games and was like looking at the signals through binoculars or whatever, um, then that's that's an issue. But it's just a matter of like if you're seeing it from like a sideline or whatever during a game, um, you know, or if you have like a scout at another game who's like taking notes on players rather than signals, um, then that's okay. But it's when you are like focused in on the signals that's a big issue. I mean, look at the sign stealing scandal with uh, the Houston Astros and the Red Sox for certain levels that are allowed and not allowed. I mean, Ultimately, the way I see whether he gets punished or not, the Jim Harbaugh era, at least in college, is coming to an end. He's going to go to either another school or go most likely to the NFL at some point. That's just ultimately what I'm seeing, because this is the second time uh, in the past couple of months that Jim Harbaugh has uh, been involved in a little bit of a scandal. So, I mean, if they win it all, I mean, there could be a huge uproar and, you know, there could be punishments coming at some point for Michigan, for, for all this, I guess, chaos that they've uh, created. Uh, sticking, though, in college football, um, I wanted to talk really about Caleb Williams because USC has really struggled. And this guy, Caleb Williams, who was projected to be this number one overall pick last year and now is the number one pick this year, he's not looking that untouchable. I mean, you got to keep in mind that USC lost three of their last four um, all of them to rank teams and that it's not entirely his fault because USC has no defense whatsoever. You know, they finally addressed it with their defensive coordinator being fired. But for Lincoln Riley, he's basically this quarterback whisperer. Um, but you would have thought even in like a 50 to 49 game, he would have told Williams, hey, let's go out there and let's make a play. You know, maybe Lincoln Riley should be focusing on defense rather than grooming these quarterbacks. So, I mean, the fact that Caleb Williams um, is struggling a little bit like this, I think is hurting his draft stock. I, I really think it do. I know he doesn't have a defense, but his stock is really taking a tumble if USC has like this kind of record. I'm sure that he'll probably still be the number one pick at some point I, I'm for whoever it is. He'll be number one. Um, but I would look at sort of what's going on. The fact that he went up to the stands and he um, had a big hug to his mom. And I do... I do like the quote uh, where he said he just wants to go home and cuddle with his dog or something like that. You know, who he's all of us, basically. Um, but, I mean, when you have him also saying, like, he wants stock, um, he wants some ownership in the team that he's uh, getting drafted to, there's a lot of things that could make Caleb Williams not be the number one overall pick. So, I mean, you just kind of have to wait and see for uh, how this last month goes if Caleb Williams can turn things around. Um, and then the last one I wanted to sort of hit on a, a touching, touching one here. We go to college basketball for this one. Obviously, Bob Knight uh, about a week ago passing away. And this this one hit a little bit because I kind of grew up near the end of uh, his tenure. Um, obviously, he's going to be a legendary figure uh, forever in college basketball, but he's always going to be remembered for, you know, his temper, his sort of his anger. And I had a coach similar to that uh, growing up, so that that sort of hit me a little bit. Um, but Bob Knight is a legacy, I guess. He's one of those guys where you really had to know him, um, and uh, you know, get on his good side, um, because he, he he looks like you know someone who can be friendly when he when you're not talking like basketball or off the court or whatever. Just from the outside perspective, you'll see him for this temper, he throwing a chair on the court. Um, I'm not going to look at it that way. I'll probably look at it. You know, you have to talk with some of his teams from Indiana, from Texas Tech, 
um, for the kind of person that he was and not just the coach. So Bob Knight uh, will definitely be missed. Um, the fact that he passed away last week. So that's how we are in the uh, other world of sports, but we're going to go from a nationals perspective to a local perspective up next because it's time for our let's get local segment of the week. This is our city. Moving on, as we usually do with our fourth segment here on the podcast, it's time to do our Let's Get Local segment and look at all the Boston teams. And I mentioned that the sun's going down, it's getting darker earlier. Same thing going on with the New England Patriots. Now, I mentioned what happened during the game at 2-7 and seven because they just continue to sink deeper and deeper with a loss to a tanking Washington team. I'm not going to talk about the game because I already did that. Let's talk about big picture and what's going on behind the scenes because I was running the uh, Six Rings postgame show on WEI. Myself, Andy Hart, Nick Fitzy-Stevens, even our guests that called in, Christian Fourier, former Pats tight end, and Gresham Fourier co-host, and our Patriots insider, Mike Cap. We all agreed that there's something going on behind the scenes that is extremely concerning right now. The giant issue in the locker room and the culture is the biggest issue because you have Jack Jones and JC Jackson, who both were apparently benched uh, for the first couple of series um, but then we don't get an explanation from Bill Belichick as to why they sat. Uh, it was some, we're ultimately putting the pieces together and it was saying it was some kind of discipline. But then after the game, Jack Jones completely leaves without talking to the media. JC Jackson just straight up tells reporter that he's not talking and we're not getting any answers about this. Absolutely none. And then you have other decisions that went into this game. Like the fact that Kayshawn Booty, when the Pats need wide receivers, when they didn't have Devontae Parker and they lost Kendrick Bourne for the season and you needed a good wide receiver, you don't activate him. And this is when on Friday, Bill Belichick says that Booty had his best practice of his whole season so far. He had the best practice and you don't even activate him. So ultimately, Belichick's voice is going in one ear and out the other right now. And the other true, the other captain's voices out there aren't being into effect. You have Matthew Slater, who, yes, is a longtime Patriot, but he's a special teamer. You have Dietrich Wise, who is an okay defender. You have Mac Jones, who's completely crapped the bed as a quarterback. So what kind of voice do you have? This is why you need someone like, if there was going to be a captain, I would have put Matthew Judon in that category because he's one of the better Pats players. Look at everywhere else in the NFL and all their captains. Their captains are probably, or at least, you know, some of them, I don't know how many captains are on like each team or whatever, but one of their captains or two of their captains are the, the, some of their best players on the roster. So it can't be these guys who are basically just meh players being your captains. So that's when it goes to that, then you have to go to a higher level to Bill Belichick thinking, is he even going to make the end of the season? Because I have been on this train for a couple of weeks now saying, Bill Belichick will not be the coach next season. I don't care about the wins record or passing Don Shuler or whatever. The Pats need this change and Robert Kraft needs to pull the plug. Now, because there's so much chaos going on, it's got you thinking, could this happen after they get back to Germany? Will Bill Belichick not even be allowed in the uh, in the building? Because how dysfunctional does it have to get 
for Robert Kraft to finally pull the plug and say, you know what, we're not going to ride with Bill Belichick. We can't do it anymore. Because let's face it, this attitude that Belichick has to the media about being dismissive and not giving answers or whatever, yeah, it's okay when you're winning games, okay? But when you're 2-7, and seven, there's no excuse for any kind of that. So it's just incredibly irritating to get a bunch of non-answers and to just not know what's going on behind the scenes, and no one will open up. No one will say anything. We haven't heard from Robert Kraft in months, you know, before the season even began was the last time we told him. Bill Belichick continues to be dismissive. You know, the biggest comment he, he's made is that he's a big fan of Taylor Swift and her rain-soaked concert at Gillette Stadium. He's, he's gone on saying we can't have one person doing multiple things, but he's a guy doing multiple things. He's making the personnel choices and he's coaching the team. So he's complaining, being completely dismissive. And ultimately, like how much longer until the end? Like, can you even stand ending the season like this? Because it's only going to get worse, as Christian Fourier likes to tell us on the postgame show week after week. It's only going to get worse. So ultimately, if I was Robert Kraft, I would even say, you know what, Bill? Do this game in Germany, and then on the bye week, goodbye. We're going to get rid of you. And there might be some rumors about maybe he doesn't make it back from Germany when they play the Colts. But it's like, how much more dysfunction does there have to be? You know, was last week the fact that, <clears throat> um, you know, you had guys like Brendan Schooler committing dumb penalties where it's basically been an every man for himself kind of situation for weeks how much longer can you put up with it? I don't know. But if it were me, I would say this last game in Germany would be the last one of Bill Belichick's coaching career because there needs to be some kind of hope in the Patriots and their fans. And right now there's none. None whatsoever. You know, you better hope that they draft a quarterback with whatever kind of top five pick that they get. But... Bill Belichick will not be the coach. And I honestly would not even be surprised if he gets fired after next week's game against the Colts in Germany, without a doubt. <sighs> I just had to get that negative out of the way so that we can get into the positive because I just had to, to rant right then there. Let's talk uh, the really good teams in Boston right now. And that's the Bruins and the Celtics. First off for the Bruins, um, they did get their first regulation loss over the weekend in Detroit, but this is still a really good hockey team right now the fact that they are going to get the record uh correctly i believe they are 10 1 and 1 yes they are they are 10 1 and 1 and i'm just still blown away with uh the roster that they have not necessarily you know because i did say last uh week that david posternock's making his case to be the mvp uh brad marchand is obviously being very effective but how about the young guys. I mean, we talked about it with uh, Bridget Pru a couple of weeks ago about how Matt Patra uh, now gets to stay with the Bruins. He's already got four goals and three assists in his young career. But how about the other young guys? You got a guy like Mason Lorai, who's in three games, has two points already to his name. And then you have other guys like Johnny Beecher. He gets his first couple of points. I mean, this team was supposed to basically have a gap year in that they weren't going to be at the top of the uh, NHL because they were so tight with cap room and cap money. And then next offseason, when it goes up, there will be room to spend, room to work with. Well, now, 
there's there's no more gap. You're in it here and now, and you found your young core. You've got Pasternak, you've got Zaka, Coyle, McAvoy, DeBrusque, all of these guys. I think you found the foundation. You have the foundation, and you're only going to be adding and improving on that because I think we ultimately agree that having the tandem of Linus Olmark and Jeremy Swayman isn't going to last much longer. So you can get value in a trade for one of the others. I mean, let's ride it out for as long as we can. You know, if I'm looking from a Jim Montgomery and a Don Sweeney, Cam Neely kind of thing, you know, if you have these two goalies that are still incredible and you have a good roster the way they are, then just ride it out until the wheels fall off. You know, once you see one struggling, if Swayman struggles, trade him. If Lena struggles, trade him. But right now, what you have, ride it out. Ride it out. And I know McAvoy hasn't played because he's been suspended and that they've got some injuries. Milan Lucic hasn't played. Ian Mitchell hasn't played. Uh, Forbert, obviously. But the roster that you have is good. It's good. You know, it's just going to be those dog days when you get, you know, past the All-Star break and then into the playoff time. How are those young guys going to respond? Because there's a, there is some experience. You know, the, the core has a lot of experience. You obviously add Van Riemsdyk. Um, you know, how how do guys like Patra and uh, uh, Beecher and Lorai, how do they do with this kind of stuff? That's sort of a wait and see kind of thing. Um, but they're not the only positive team playing in the TD Garden right now. The Celtics have been unleashed. I mean, yes, they lost their first game uh, of the season last night. But hey, to, to make it the last undefeated team, five games in at 5-0, and oh, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. And and like I said last week, they still need to work on their depth. You know, who are the guys behind those top six? And, you know, the 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 concern last night was that they were getting into their old habits. You know, when you when you get to overtime, it was a lot of isolation. It was a lot of two-man game between Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. You weren't really moving the ball effective. And then you had Joe Missoula, who basically didn't call timeout at all when Anthony Edwards was going off on the Celtics. Missoula just lets the guys figure it out themselves and not call a timeout. That's the issue that I said. You know, I initially tweeted out uh, on Brand X that um, in the Knicks game, in the opening game, and in the Heat game, those first two games of the year, that they got rid of those late game issues for now. I think they're still going to pop up now and again. You know, it's just a matter of, is this stuff going to happen in the postseason? I still think they're an incredibly talented team and they're probably the best team in the Eastern Conference uh, on both ends of the floor. And yeah, they're going to have nights like this. Um, you know, I, I wasn't expecting 82-0, and 0, although it would have been kind of cool. Um, you know, so I think just getting rid of those habits consistently, you know, it can it happen maybe once or twice? Sure. But if there's another sort of end of game situation and this continues to happen, you know, let's say they go into this, uh, they go into like a big matchup with the bucks or, you know, in a finals preview with the nuggets or something like that. And this kind of stuff happens, then it gets a little bit concerning, but you know, it's still, we're not even a month into the new season. So let's not fully press on the panic button. Let's just keep an eye out for those kinds of situations, because if it happens more frequently, then you can say, okay, Missoula hasn't learned his lesson or the players haven't learned his le their lesson. Um, hopefully they do when it gets to you know playoff time in these uh, crucial situations. But I'm not going to 
go too deep on uh, the loss to uh, the Timberwolves because they weren't going to go 82 and 0, and they might not even go 81 and 1. You know, if they can get like 60 wins, then I'm okay with that. I'm totally okay with that. So, in the Boston sports world, it's it's a the best of both worlds. You got your great teams, but then you got your awful situations going on right now. I guess it's more Fox Bro than anything else. Um, but uh, stay right there because we got one more segment left to do, and as we always do. We get on the lighter side by looking at our LOL moment of the week. All right, let's get into it. It's our LOL moment of the week where we look on the lighter side of sports and give you the big blooper from the past seven days. And I think this one is pretty obvious i don't know specifically who to give it to i think i'd give it to the nba um because the big story going into this year was uh the in-season tournament there are going to be a couple of nights uh that are in-season games where uh teams will play each other in group play then they'll go to a knockout round then the semis then they'll have the finals in vegas it's it's all really confusing but at least my takeaway was just the awful awful court designs that the NBA has provided to all 32 teams. I'm just going to show you a few of them right here. This is the Pacers uh, court right here. I mean, first off, the label of INDY looks absolutely bad. And then the color scheme, just an all blue court just looks awful. Absolutely awful. Awful. I mean, here, here's another one to look at uh, with the Oklahoma City Thunder. Again, going all the all color scheme. You know, the logo is there, but, you know, the paint is kind of meshed in there or whatever. But I think the worst one has to be this one, the Chicago Bulls court. Just a bright red all throughout the court. I mean, ew, absolutely ew. Who, who thought this was a good idea, ultimately? Not not the in-season tournament, but the, the court designs, you know, if you're going to have this sort of in-season tournament, you can't hype it up like this. You know, you can't put bright colors on a court or whatever. Just, you know, make them wear the uh, City Connect jerseys uh, on the on these games or whatever. You know, it, it's another regular season game. They add up. And, like, I understand the in-season tournament is a marketing kind of thing, and the NBA's PR is trying to get ahead of it. But my gosh, this this is what I meant when I talked about uh, the All-Star game with Adam Silver is they're overthinking things so much. Just let them play on their standard courts. How many people are going to get distracted by these bright colored courts? Like they look absolutely awful. Like stop overthinking it. Like it's you're putting too much stock into this kind of thing. So, like, it, it's funny, but it's also an anger-irritating kind of thing, uh, LOL, considering how bad these court decisions are. I mean, even if they looked like that, I just don't like the colors. I, I don't like the colors on the, the side of it. I'm okay with, like, the center logo or whatever, but the way I played basketball was on standard courts, standard hardwood, okay? So stop overthinking this like literally just go to the standard courts change the center logo maybe change the paint to make it look like that cup or whatever the nba cup and then put a label of like in-season tournament like somewhere on the court like stop overthinking this it's so so bad so i guess for the nba and adam silver for putting out these 
terrible, terrible court designs and choosing, you know, flash rather than just simplicity. You've earned yourselves into this week's LOL moment of the week. And that's a wrap. We are done with episode 93 of Let Me Speak. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. Make sure you're following me and this podcast. Uh, just search us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. You can find me at Joe Braverman PVP. You can find the podcast on Instagram and Facebook. Just search Let Me Speak Podcast. Make sure wherever you're watching this on the platform, whether it's Spotify, Apple, or watching us on YouTube, keep that countdown going because next time, We'll have episode 94 as the countdown to 100 continues. Thank you again, and we will see you next time. Later.